Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Connor. We are joined today by Professor Samuel G. Friedman. Uh, He is an author and journalist. He has won numerous awards as well as being a Pulitzer Prize finalist. Um, And he is currently at Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism. Today, we're going to be discussing his latest book coming out in in July, I believe, into the Bright Sunshine, Young Hubert Humphrey and the Right and the Fight for Civil Rights. Um, Professor, welcome to the show. Thank you, Connor. It's great to be here with you. All right, sir. So I must say up front that I was uh, I was born and raised in Minnesota, That's a right. town about an hour and a half north of, of, uh, of Minneapolis, um, Malacca. And so, and I have to admit that Hubert Humphrey is a name I heard all the time growing up, but didn't know a lot about him. You know, we had the the Metrodome where the Vikings and the, the uh, Twins played, but it was kind of a rundown, nasty <laughs> sports arena, to be honest. And that was my main encounter with that with that name. Um, and so I just want to say thank you for writing this book. I learned a ton about the amazing work he did for civil rights in Minnesota and the and the and the and the U.S. Um, and so, um, but before we get into that. Uh, I would love to hear your background and sort of what le- what led you to writing this book. Sure. Um, and I'll tell you an emblematic story about Humphrey and the Humphrey Dome later on. Um, I-, I grew up in central New Jersey. I came up as a writer through newspaper work, literally starting from my junior high school newspaper on up through high school, college at the University of Wisconsin, small daily paper, midsize, um, ultimately onto the New York Times. And after about 10 years as a daily journalist, I moved into writing books. And uh, Into the Bright Sunshine is my 10th book. And a lot of my books have dealt with various political or social issues. Um, and several of them have dealt with civil rights and, and race specifically. And with this book, I had for a long time, I mean, like for 10 or 12 years, been looking for some book that would be set right after World War II, because I felt there was this kind of complacent acceptance of a view of history that World War II ended, and then the next thing you know, it's the mid-50s, and everyone's mowing their lawns in suburbia. Um, and first of all, that's actually wrong about the 1950s, which was a very turbulent decade in its own ways, as anyone who's read David Halberstam's book, The 50s, knows. But it also just sort of omitted what happened from 1945 into the 50s. But I had never found quite the right topic. And I had an awareness just from being kind of a student of civil rights history of Hubert Humphrey's landmark speech on civil rights at the 1948 Democratic Convention. But it actually hadn't occurred to me that that might be a book topic until my wife and I, my wife and I were attending um, a book talk given by a friend of ours, a historian named Julian Zelzer. And 
Julian had just written a book about LBJ with Humphreys as vice president passing law of the Great Society legislation in the mid-1960s. These were laws that really sort of advanced the New Deal's social compact. And my wife, who had lived in Minnesota for many years, asked Julian, what about Humphrey's role in that? And Julian ended up going on to a different tangent. But a few minutes later, he said, I want to come back to a question about Humphrey. And he mentioned the speech. And somehow, even though I knew about the speech already, when Julian mentioned it, the light bulb went off for me. And I thought, that's the post-war book I've been looking for. And it worked for me in a couple of ways, because it was not only a time period I thought was underexplored. It went to the subjects of civil rights and race relations and also, you know, the lives of American Jews and the battle against anti-Semitism, which I had written about in a previous book. It raised all those subjects that are dear to me. And finally, I was really aware of the fact that Lyndon Johnson, even though when I was growing up, he had been vilified for the Vietnam War, his reputation had been rehabilitated in recent years um, with Robert Caro's books and with uh, Brian Cranston in the play and then the HBO adaptation um, all the way. And I wondered, and, and, and LBJ had been rehabilitated because people said, okay, his decisions on Vietnam were tragic and horrendous and cost tens of thousands of American lives and millions of Vietnamese lives. But what he did on domestic issues as a president was astonishing. And what he did on civil rights specifically was bold, courageous, and done at great political risk. And I thought, well, Hubert Humphrey was part of that. And more than that, Hubert Humphrey was a leader on civil rights well before Lyndon Johnson was. Why is Hubert Humphrey either forgotten or still the object of scorn and ridicule? Because if people today remember Humphrey at all, they remember him for the Vietnam War. They remember him for a bunch of unsuccessful presidential campaigns. They remember him as the candidate who couldn't stop talking. And when you talk about the Humphrey Dome in Minneapolis, there was this bitter joke about it, but very typical of the way people felt about Humphrey, which is why did they name the dome after Hubert Humphrey? Because it's filled with hot air. <laughs> and that was unfortunately typical. And I thought, there is this whole part of Humphrey's life that never gets looked at that includes this period of civil rights history in the 1940s that never gets looked at. And that's just what an author really wants, which is terra incognita, relatively speaking, uncharted territory. And so way back in January 2015, that started me on this journey. There are a lot of tangents there that I want to go on with you. The first one that comes to mind, though, is I got the sense when I was reading the book that um, LBJ and Truman um, kind of veered towards uh, civil rights because it was the popular thing, it was in vogue, whereas um, Hubert Humphrey really actually cared about the people. Um, is that a fair way to look at it? Would you put it a different way? Well, well, first of all, I want to compliment you for drawing the parallel between Harry Truman and Lyndon Johnson. A lot of people compare the better angels of LBJ to Franklin Roosevelt, and I was definitely the person who um, Lyndon Johnson thought of as his model, and the great society legislation was modeled on New Deal. But on civil rights, I think of Johnson as much more similar to Truman. 
because Truman was from a border state. His ancestors had fought for the Confederacy. Um, Johnson was from a, de facto a southern state, albeit bordering into the southwest, the state of Texas. And both of them were torn between personal compassion for the downtrodden in this country, including um, black people and for Johnson also uh, Latinos, and between their sense of political expediency. And both of them had to make choices. And I think this is why I say what you say, between moving forward on civil rights because they knew it was the righteous thing to do and fearing that because they knew it would be electorally unpopular. And in fact, for both of them, it wasn't a popular choice. It was a very dangerous choice to make. Um, one reason that Harry Truman was reluctant to have civil rights in a democratic platform in 1948 and had to have it forced into that platform by Hubert Humphrey winning a vote of the delegates at the convention is that Truman felt, just like FDR had felt, that the democratic coalition depends on keeping the Southern wing of the party intact. The Southern wing at that time was segregationist. It was all white. The Republican party in the South, even though now it's the dominant party in the South, at that time, it was trounced in every election because people still associated it with the union cause in the Civil War in Abraham Lincoln and voted against it. And of course, black people could not vote in the South for the most part. An overwhelming share of black people weren't allowed to register to vote. So Truman in 48 and even LBJ in 64 really had to weigh whether they would dare push forward on civil rights. And you're right about Humphrey. He felt this commitment to civil rights without any political complications. He felt it that way as mayor of Minneapolis, and he felt it that way as senator and as vice president. He actually wasn't concerned in an amazing way when you think about being an elected official that campaigning as an advocate for civil rights and also for the fight against anti-Semitism was going to not help him politically, that it very likely was going to hurt him politically. He had a deep sense of right and wrong, um, a good deal of which, which you can talk about later, came out of his religious life. So he forced Harry Truman to basically run on Truman's better stances. That's the story that I culminate into the bright sunshine with. And by the time uh, Hubert Humphrey became Lyndon Johnson's vice president in 64, Johnson had already made the decision that he was going to push through civil rights. But when he did it, for instance, when he was able to push through the Civil Rights Act of 64, which Hubert Humphrey helped as one of the four managers in the Senate, Johnson said, I have given the South to the Republican Party for the foreseeable future or words to that effect. And he was absolutely right. So all that to say, uh, when you were doing your research, you didn't find any comments that Humphrey may have made offline about, you know, with, with racial slurs or jokes, because I know that was something that, that, that can be found with L. Right. It's a, you're, absolutely, you're absolutely right, Connor. I mean, part of the paradox of Truman and Johnson is they use the N-word. They trafficked in some of the stereotypes of the time. I never found a single example of that with Humphrey. And I think a lot of that had to do with how he was raised. He was raised, um, he had a very religious mother. His father had been fairly secular, but became religious. And Humphrey was very influenced by a movement in Protestant America called the Social Gospel. 
And the social gospel really stood in opposition to fundamentalist uh, Protestant theology in, in one very clear way. The fundamentalists at that time believed that being religious is about salvation in the next world. It's about trying to live a puritanical, sin-free life on earth, even though you know you're going to sin, and hopefully being rewarded for it in heaven, and not getting too tied up in the doings of uh, the earthly world, except on issues that were seen as issues of morality, like prohibition, uh, for instance. Um, whereas the social gospel, even though the social gospel, like a lot of fundamentalists, believed that the Bible was the word of God, not something that had been interpreted by humans, but the social gospel was about the idea that we've got to try to build the kingdom of God on earth. And that was the term, the terminology they used, the kingdom of God on earth. You've got to improve the lives of human beings on earth, and that's doing what God and Jesus want you to do. And that meant working on behalf of working people in labor unions. It meant working on behalf of improving race relations. It ultimately came to mean doing interfaith work with Catholics and with Jews. And that just was formative for Hubert Humphrey. And I think what went with that is that it was really blasphemous to use racial slurs or to use ethnic slurs. I've read so much of Humphrey's private correspondence, thousands of letters, I'm sure, and I've never found a single utterance like that. And I think that it's because he really felt that he had to live a principled moral life, not because it was um, a political necessity, but because this was part of his sense of himself as a religious person. Now, I believe that Humphrey's father was a self-proclaimed atheist for a portion of, of Humphrey's life um, until he befriended, he befriended the Reverend Hart in their hometown. In the That's correct. Is, was this, was it, is this normal for the, for the, the, the era to have a atheist parent and like, did this also have an impact on how he viewed the world, do you think? I'd say that at that time, out in uh, the grasslands of eastern South Dakota, where Hubert Humphrey grew up, grew up, it was extremely rare to have someone proclaim themselves an atheist. How many people went to church for communal reasons and may not have you know, really been believers in divinity? I have no idea. But to publicly call yourself an atheist was to really declare yourself an outsider. And Hubert Humphrey Sr., whom everybody called H.H., was proud of that. Um, I think what it modeled for his son was being independent in your thinking and not worrying about whether everyone was going to accept you. And what went with H.H. as an atheist, I think, was more important than the atheism, which ended anyway when, as you said, he befriended uh, the Methodist minister in town, Reverend um, Albert Hart, and you know, became so committed to the Methodist Church that H.H. began to teach Sunday school there. But what mattered more than his atheism was the political ideals he had. He was very influenced by Woodrow Wilson's example of internationalism and on the idea of the 14 points to try to equitably um, end World War II, the internationalism of trying to form the League of Nations. He was very affected by William Jennings Bryan, and the populist um, movement 
that at that time was very much about trying to get um, farmers and working people to unite to balance out the power of large-scale capitalism in the form of banks and railroads and you know lumber barons and meat companies and so forth. And also, and this was really rare in South Dakota, H.H. was a supporter of Al Smith. When Al Smith ran for president in 1928, he was the first Roman Catholic ever to run for president. And he was absolutely the subject of the most vile bigotry of anyone to ever run for president. I'd say he was the subject of even, of even more um, bigoted language than maybe even Barack Obama was running as, as a black man for president. And even other Democrats in South Dakota, even HH's best friend, Reverend Hart, who agreed with him on uh, populism and on elements of 14 points, they thought that Al Smith was anathema. They thought that any Catholic would take orders from the Pope. They thought that he would sell out the country to, you know, the brewing and distilling industries. And H.H. was not dissuaded by that. He actually went to the 1928 Democratic Convention as a delegate for Al Smith. And for a while, it cost him his friendship with his best friend, Reverend Hart. And when Al Smith was running for president, there was a mostly Catholic town near where Humphrey grew up, and the Ku Klux Klan burned a cross outside of it as a warning to the Catholics there, because the Klan, audio listeners may not realize, at this time was not only virulently uh, anti-Black, but also anti-Semitic and very virulently anti-Catholic. So what Humphrey, as in Hubert, saw from his father H.H. was an example of standing your ground, of holding to your true beliefs on behalf of liberalism, even if they became unpopular. I just want to zoom out for a second and say that, um, you know, the listeners should know that this isn't strictly a biography of Hubert Humphrey. It, it, you know, it does cover the first half of his life or so, but it's also a history of civil rights in Minneapolis and the country. Um, and so you give a great history of the experience of being black or Jewish in Minneapolis in this, in this era. Um, and so I also want to say that because of my own ignorance, I suppose, I always just thought that I'm from Minnesota. I'm from the North that, 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 that racism stuff happened in the South. That's not really the case. So I was wondering if you could paint a picture for us of what Minneapolis felt like at this time and um, how that impacted Humphrey as he moved onto that phase of his life. I guess he had a false start in Minneapolis. Yeah. No, sure. Yeah. But sure, Connor, I'd be glad to. Um, when Hubert Humphrey comes back permanently to Minneapolis in 1940, having finished grad school down at LSU, he's coming to a city that uh, is notorious, really, for its anti-Semitism and its racism. And even today, we think of Minneapolis as notwithstanding the murder of George Floyd as overall this blue city. They have democratic socialists and trans people on the city council. We think of Minnesota as being, you know, a purple leaning into blue state. And even at the time when Humphrey was in Minneapolis, first as a college student in the 30s and then coming back to work um, for the federal government and ultimately to go into politics in the 40s, there was this sense 
that this is a pretty liberal city because of what was then called the Farmer Labor Party, which was a political party that was a fusion, again, of farmers and uh, working people, and that tended to do very well in Minneapolis and also in other parts of the state, like the what's called the Iron Range, which was the mining area um, in north central and northeast Minnesota. And yet Minneapolis had an entrenched bigotry that came really both from the right and from the left. And even though the populations, both Jews and blacks, were numerically very small, they were too small to really wield any effective political power to defend themselves, but they were large enough to be considered a threat by the majority population, which was Protestant, mostly of German or Scandinavian background. And the typical attitude you'd get in Minneapolis, if you asked about race relations there, is the thing you were you know, just saying yourself. People would say, well, we don't lynch them here. They can live here. They can vote here. You know, all we want them to do is just stay in their own neighborhood. And, uh, you know, we're not like the South. And Humphrey could see by the 1940s that that was a lie, that yes, they could live in in their own segregated neighborhood, but when black people had moved out into other neighborhoods in several instances in Minneapolis, their homes would be surrounded by white mobs, would be vandalized, they'd be driven out. And blacks could work, but they could only work in the typical servile jobs. They could be, you know, domestic labor. They could work as a bellhop, you know, sort of at the best. You could be a Pullman Railroad porter. But other than the handful of, you know, black de doctors, dentists, lawyers in the black neighborhoods, you had no social mobility whatsoever. And so this was not the as they say, du jour, meaning under law segregation of the South. This was the de facto segregation of the North. And that was what Humphrey um, became aware of. And another piece of it then, and this it sadly anticipates George Floyd, was a tremendously abusive police force in its treatment of both black people and Jews in Minneapolis. And Humphrey had to take on all of these issues um, when he was mayor. And the other thing I just want to add on this is that the big business interests would tend to be discriminatory in their hiring, not hire blacks, not hire Jews. But the labor unions who consider themselves the leading edge of liberalism in Minneapolis, they were often just as discriminatory. The major labor unions in Minneapolis wouldn't let blacks be members for the most part. Only in certain unions were, was there much of a Jewish presence. So it wasn't like this was just a problem from political conservatives. People who thought of themselves as political liberals also had a very deliberate blind eye when it came to the inclusion of people of different races and religions. In the 40s here, would you see World War II as a kind of a breaking point, a fever pitch, or a moment in which uh, things don't make sense because you have veterans who are black who are being treated terribly and you're you have this war where you're trying to help the the Jewry of Europe but you're still treating the the Jews of Minneapolis awful did World War II act as a sort of impetus to make the people look in the mirror and think about how they how they uh, treat uh, others you think 
That's an excellent and really perceptive question, Connor. I'm convinced we would not have had the civil rights movement that we know of without World War II. Um, because World War II is war on the part of America against fascism, and fascism means white supremacy, and it means religious intolerance, both of them carried to lethal degrees. And so you have black GIs, Jewish GIs, putting their lives on the line to go and fight against Nazi Germany, fascist Italy, imperial Japan, which, make no mistake, practice its own brand of, of racial supremacy against other Asian populations who had considered inferior, like the Koreans and the Chinese and the Filipinos. And there, these black and Jewish soldiers are fighting on behalf of a country that still doesn't completely include them. And there is a very conscious sense among those GIs and also among their families on the home front that the unfinished business of this war is going to be taking on confronting the white supremacy and the anti-Semitism on the home front, that you can't just defeat it on the battlefields of Europe and in the Pacific without being a hypocrite unless you're also going to come on and fight the battle against it at home. And so really, once you get to about 1943, and it's pretty clear the Allies are going to win the war, no one knows how soon, but the tide of the war has turned, this sensibility gets repeatedly expressed on the home front. And it carries over through the rest of the war, and it definitely continues into the post-war years. And what also really accelerates it is when you have a series of incidents after World War II, when black war veterans come back, particularly to the South, and they're wearing their uniforms, and they're attacked and even killed for daring to show up at home in a uniform or for trying to register to vote because they feel like they've really earned that right. They feel like they've really earned that right now from their war service. <clears throat> Excuse me. And those atrocities contribute to the civil rights movement. And in Minneapolis, you have the harassment of black veterans, and you also have the beatings, even while World War II is still going on. Just at the same time that the first newsreel footage of the Nazi death camps is being shown in movie theaters in Minneapolis and elsewhere in the country, you have Jewish kids on the north side of Minneapolis, the main Jewish neighborhood, being beaten up for being Jewish, being called dirty Jews. Um, and that is something that becomes part of Humphrey's first mayoral campaign because it's just absolutely morally untenable that this can happen. And, you know, we like to think of World War II as the good war, which it was. We like to think of the men and women who fought it as the greatest generation, which they were. But we tend to forget that on the home front, even fighting a war against Nazism didn't correlate for a significant number of Americans to the fact that you should not be hating your black and Jewish fellow Americans. All right. For the sake of the listener, I'm going to uh, return to the chronological order of Humphrey's life here. So he was raised in South Dakota. He uh, eventually got licensed as a pharmacist to work, to work at his father's drugstore. Uh, he eventually moved in his mid-20s, I believe, to, 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 to Minneapolis with his wife to attend the University of Minnesota. 
Um, and then would you see his move to to um, Louisiana as a turning point or a pivot in his life at all? It definitely is a pivot when he goes to graduate school at Louisiana State. But even before that, there are a couple of episodes in Humphrey's life that really form his adult political sensibility. One is he actually starts at the University of Minnesota in um, 1929, just a few weeks before the stock market crashes. But where he'd grown up in South Dakota had been basically in a depression through much of the 1920s because of a crisis in agriculture prices and a related banking crisis. So South Dakota was already in its own depression for much of Humphrey's childhood. And he goes and starts at the University of Minnesota. And a year and a half later, by that time, his family has lost their home. They've lost their um, family drugstore. They're having to pull up stakes and move to another town in South Dakota to try to start over. And Humphrey has to drop out to try to help them. And he gets this pharmacy degree from a pharmacy school in Colorado because under South Dakota law, you need a licensed pharmacist to dispense medication. So Humphrey has to give up his college career to come home and try to help the family survive in the Depression. And while he's there, the dust storms hit, and it's just the worst years of the Depression. And that gives him his devotion to the New Deal economic program, because after Franklin Roosevelt is elected, he sees in very concrete ways how it improves the lives of people in his town and improves the life of his own family. So then he ends up getting married, and finally, after six years out of college, going back to finish up his degree. And after he gets his degree in uh, the spring of 1939, he's looking to go to grad school. And just pure chance to one of his professors at the University of Minnesota, he finds out about a graduate assistantship. In other words, like being a TA, a teaching assistant at, the, at Louisiana State, that'll pay him about 400 bucks while he goes to grad school there. And as a husband who's now a new father of a daughter named Nancy, he needs the money. So he goes to LSU purely because this will allow him to afford graduate school. But when he goes there, it becomes the transformational year of his life. He goes there and for the first time he's living in a Jim Crow society. Because when he'd been a student at the University of Minnesota, he was very oblivious at that point to the lives of blacks and Jews in Minneapolis. They lived miles away from the campus. He really had no awareness of it that we can tell. But then he's thrust into an officially segregated society for the first time, and it appalls him, you know, to see the separate waiting rooms, the separate fountains to see black people who are afraid to get on an elevator in the state capitol because there's a white person already in the elevator. Um, and where he lives in Baton Rouge requires him to pass through Baton Rouge's main black neighborhood every day when he goes to and from the LSU campus. And then really unexpectedly, it's also at LSU where Humphrey gets to know Jewish people for the first time in his life. Um, and he's on the debate team when he's at LSU and several of his debate team um, partners are from Jewish families, mostly in the South. And one of them in particular, a student named Alvin Rubin, has relatives who are trapped in Europe now and have banished into the maw of, of the Nazi concentration camps. So through the friendship with Alvin Rubin, Humphrey is beginning to learn about 
the Nazi project and firsthand or, or secondhand from Alvin Rubin. And the final really important element of Humphreys here at LSU is he studies with Professor Rudolf Eberle, who is an exiled, one-eighth Jewish, anti-Nazi professor. And Eberle had done research before he was exiled from Germany in how it was that democratic Germany could end up electing someone like Hitler. How is it that democracies can become dictatorships? And he brings with him to LSU all that research, which he hopes to turn into a book. And when he teaches classes, including the seminar and social movements that Humphrey took, he's not only sharing his research with his students, he's also telling them firsthand stories of what he saw, of what his family experienced there. And that just has this indelible lifelong effect on Humphrey, particularly what Eberly talks about with the necessity to resist totalitarians or authoritarians when they're just starting out, when they're just trying to pick off the most marginal group in a society. And a lot of the mainstream thinks, well, what do I care about if the Nazis are going after the Jews or if they're going, you know, after gays or, you know, disabled people or Roma? You know, those are you know, fringy people. That's not me. Eberly's lesson is they're going to come for you in the end. And Humphrey really takes that to heart and brings all of what he's learned in LSU back to Minneapolis with him. But a key thing, Connor, is this. It would have been almost expected that when Humphrey went back to the North, he'd wipe his brow and think, well, this is different. You know, down South was segregation and Jim Crow and Nazi Germany is Nazi Germany, and now I'm back in Minneapolis and things are different. But it's the opposite. He goes back to Minneapolis with his eyes opened to the intolerance in Minneapolis in a way they'd never been opened earlier in his uh, time there in college. But he was also quite interested in, in continuing to do a PhD at Princeton, right? But then the funding didn't work out. So it wasn't like he was necessarily 100% in for politics. He was kind of at this uh, crossroads after after LSU. Right? Well, you're right. Humphrey was at a crossroads. He, part of him wanted to be a professor and was ready to try to go on and get a doctorate. But part of him was really oriented towards the practical work of politics. And as an admirer of FDR and as an admirer of some of what Huey Long did um, as governor of Louisiana, he was drawn to that. And he really, as a personality, wasn't someone who was going to be happy being in the archives day after day and only teaching classes. He really wanted to be out there among people. And I think he wanted to make concrete change. And I think he understood that you had to be in politics to do that. Although he did return to Minneapolis with the idea that he would finish his PhD in political science at the University of Minnesota. But very quickly, he abandoned that. He got a job working for worker education and then for war mobilization for uh, the FDR administration. That gave him opportunities to speak a lot to the public, to build wartime morale, to uh, you know teach worker education programs, to teach classes, to service men and, and service women. And all that really set him on the path to running for elective office. And it seems like that was his path, was just giving speeches over and over in the, in the area and 
you know, he had the first election didn't quite go his way, but he soon won the support of the city by a landslide. Um, was he was he at this time just really interested in in uh, in obtaining power, or was he passionate about civil rights, or was it somewhere in the middle that that let led him to give so many speeches around the area? Humphrey understood both things. He understood, I think, at an intuitive level, you had to have power to make change. You could have the best ideals in the world, but you're not going to change, make social change or political change by hoping that everyone comes around to your way of thinking that you have to acquire and exert power. And I think sometimes people, especially liberals, think that there's something unsavory about power. But power is a tool. And like any tool, it's what you do with it. And the other part of Humphrey speaking is, you know, he was someone who had a healthy ego. He knew he was a good speaker. He loved getting applause. He loved getting complimentary letters after he spoke. But all these things fit together. His own need for approval, his own eloquence, his great value system, and his understanding that to make effective change, you need to get into the political system. Now, I was a bit confused. This was my own fault, but during his time as mayor, the people loved him, but he also had a lot of hate, and he was shot at, and his dog was killed. And it seemed to, correct me, was it the Jewish mafia that was trying to kill him, or I was a bit no. confused. Okay. Was yeah, sorry. Well, there was there there were a whole bunch of Jewish gangsters in Minneapolis, and their presence was actually one of the excuses for anti-Semites in Minneapolis because they could point to these gangsters and say, "See how Jews cause all cause all the crime." And of course, they didn't cause anywhere near all of it, but there were visible Jewish mobsters. No, what happened is when Humphrey is elected mayor, he begins to move forward on a program of civil rights and human rights. He's pushing to get the city to require fair employment practices, which means equal treatment in employment. You can't hire or fire based on people's race, religion, nationality, um, sex, and so forth. That's very controversial at that time. He is trying to reform the police force uh, which has a terrible track record of abusing Jewish and black people in Minneapolis. When one of the leading Christian nationalist American firsters, Gerald L. K. Smith, comes several times to Minneapolis to speak, it's Humphrey who becomes his most important public opponent. And for all those reasons, there's then a backlash against Humphrey, even though he's very popular at the ballot box, there's a portion of Minneapolis that considers him vile. And one of Gerald L. K. Smith's followers in Minneapolis, one night in February 1947, tries to ambush Humphrey outside his home and shoots at him and fortunately misses. And that person had been already part of sending hate mail to Humphrey, to various political allies of Humphrey's, to people who worked on Humphrey's Human Rights Commission, to the local newspapers. He'd been putting up anti-Semitic signs on the college campus at the university. But this guy was uh, not just some crackpot. He was armed. He had guns. He, is not, he had knives. He was corresponding with white supremacist organizations around the country. And he was the one who took the shot at Humphrey. And what he did to try to throw the authorities off his trail was then to send follow-up letters claiming to be someone 
who had overheard Jewish gangsters saying how they were going to uh, kill Humphrey. And Humphrey had had his police force crack down on the Jewish gangsters and also the non-Jewish gangsters. But it was absolutely impossible that these Jewish gangsters would have tried to assassinate Humphrey because they knew it was really bad for business. Humphrey was really popular with Jewish voters in Minneapolis, and even the gangsters wanted to be accepted in the Jewish community, and it would have totally cost them legitimacy in the Jewish community for them to be seen as people who would actually try to kill Hubert Humphrey, who took on anti-Semitism, who was a hero to Jews in Minneapolis. And plus, the mobsters understood if it's one thing to shoot a rival, it's one thing to even you know, to shoot another gangster, but to shoot the mayor is going to mean that there's going to be investigations like you've never experienced before. So it's completely impossible that the gangster shot at Humphrey. And it's completely certain in my mind that the neo-Nazi white supremacist anti-Semite named Maynard Nelson did. And it's just very interesting that Humphrey clearly decided not to have the authorities pursue that case because it gets sort of mysteriously dropped at a low level of a charge. And I think Humphrey's hope was that Nelson would sort of go away. And ultimately, he did go away, and he got himself involved with the American Nazi Party down in Chicago, which is part of the reason why, to this day, there's a massive FBI file on uh, Maynard Orlando Nelson. Well, your work here with examining... Humphrey's life, along with your intertwining of the history of the time, reaches the book's climax at the at the Democratic National Convention of 1948, and especially with Humphrey's speech at the at the convention. What's the significance of 1948, the uh, of the Democratic National con- con- uh, Convention, and what's the significance of this speech that occurs? The 1948 Democratic Convention is the moment when the Democratic Party has to decide where it stands on civil rights. With all of the great things that Franklin Roosevelt had done, Franklin Roosevelt had made a devil's bargain with the segregationist wing of the Democratic Party. The New Deal Coalition was this really improbable amalgam of organized labor, urban Catholics, urban Jews, college-educated intellectuals, and, oh, by the way, the segregationists of the South, all of whom belong to the Democratic Party. And the devil's bargain that FDR made is that he would never take on segregation, that he would even allow New Deal programs in the South to be implemented in a way that they didn't reach black people at all or remotely equitably. And that allowed FDR to win the votes of Southern white voters, so he'd get the electoral votes of those states to win re-election, and it allowed him to keep the loyalty of Southerners who had high-ranking positions in the Senate and the House of Representatives. Harry Truman, in 1948, having become president after FDR died in 1945, Harry Truman wants to do the same thing FDR has done, tolerate this kind of impossible contradiction within the Democratic Party between liberals and segregationists and do it in order to win the election. Now, Harry Truman had actually, in his first year or two as president, moved forward pretty boldly on civil rights, but he had gotten such backlash from the southern wing of his party that by the time he's heading into the 48th convention, 
he's adamant that the party has to have a vague, fuzzy plank about civil rights that will placate the Southerners because he needs their votes to win the election. And Hubert Humphrey is part of an insurgency within the Democratic Party that says it's impossible for us to dodge the issue of civil rights anymore. This is a moral issue within the country. We're in a cold war against the Soviet Union for the hearts and minds of non-white people in Asia and Africa and the Caribbean Basin and South America. And the Soviets are telling those people that America is hypocritical and liberal, liberal democracy is a fraud because of how it allows racial segregation in its own country. And Humphrey and Zaz are saying, we've got to be consistent if we're going to win the battle of hearts and minds. And also there's a judgment that political people are starting to make that the Democrats have got to win a greater share of black votes in order to remain viable. And that maybe they can even risk alienating some Southern voters if they can bring in in key swing states, black voters. So it's a combination of idealism and pragmatism that Humphrey comes to the convention with. And at the same time, Humphrey is working inside the party and literally inside the convention hall. Outside the convention hall, the great black labor and civil rights leader, A. Philip Randolph, is leading protest marches that are also aimed at pressuring Harry Truman and the Democratic Party. Because A. Philip Randolph is running a campaign of massive black draft resistance, that black young men will not register for the draft, will not serve if they're called up until Harry Truman desegregates the military. So you have Humphrey, Mr. Inside, you have Randolph, Mr. Outside, both pushing the party on civil rights, all while Harry Truman is hoping to avoid the whole issue, and all while the Southern delegates to the convention have been saying for months, if you adopt the civil rights plank, we're bolting from this party. You've lost us. And so Humphrey heads into the night of July 14th, 1948 at the convention to, to deliver a speech trying to get the Democrats to endorse a really strong, emphatic plank on civil rights instead of the pallet plank the Truman's people have put forward. And Humphrey is really fearing for his whole political career. Truman in his diary is calling Humphrey and his allies crackpots. Truman's people on con at the convention who are senators of major states are telling Humphrey, your career is over if you do this. And Hubert Humphrey is just 37 years old. He's the mayor of a mid-sized city. He's only been mayor for three years. And he's really worrying that this is the end of his political life. But for a variety of reasons, he decides to go ahead and give that speech. And when he gives it and he utters the famous phrase that the Democratic Party should walk out of the shadow of states' rights, which was the term for segregation, walk out of the shadow of states' rights and march forthrightly into the bright sunshine of human rights, it's this electrifying moment. Now, part of the convention is cursing him out from the floor right then and there. Other parts are wildly applauding. Millions of people are listening to this speech on the radio. It's, the, it's being broadcast on TV along the Northeast Corridor of the United States. So some other 10 million people are watching it on TV. And in the convention floor, Humphrey's fantastic speech carries the day. And the delegates actually vote against what Truman wants, endorse the civil rights plank, 
A few hours later, the Southern segregationists walk out to form what will be called the Dixiecrat Party. And Harry Truman at that point has no choice but to run as the candidate of civil rights. And amazingly, he succeeds at doing it. Um, he, he desegregates the armed forces and the federal workforce by executive order two weeks after the convention. On the last weekend before Election Day, he holds the first presidential speech ever to be given in Harlem, the symbolic capital of black America. And on Election Day, the Dixiecrats indeed do win a lot of the southern states. But the upsurge of voters of black votes and liberal votes that Truman gets because of his stance on civil rights in swing states like California and Ohio and others provides his margin of victory over Tom Dewey. And Humphrey comes home to to Minneapolis, all this, and he has just so much praise and love from the people. And he does really embark on an illustrious career leading to be the vice president of the United States. And I mean, he should be very happy at the, at the, at the end of his life, but it seems that he's not. If we come to the end of his life, he's in his sixties, he has cancer and he seems quite disappointed with how his life has gone. Can you help? clarify that? Why does he feel this way? Or is that an, an sure. a fair No, it's a very fair characterization. I mean, Humphrey was a congenital optimist. And part of the reason people ridiculed him is because they thought no one could be that joyful all the time. But by the end of his life, he's been battered around. He's been fighting cancer for 10 years, and now it's in the terminal stage. He's run for president twice, no, three times and lost once in the general election and twice in the primaries. He has become unpopular with his liberal admirers of the past because of his support for the Vietnam War. And he is aware of all this at the end of his life. And even in public, even though in public settings, he puts on a brave face and seems like the old spunky, can't shut him up, Hubert Humphrey, when he's writing to his closest confidants, including a diplomat, Eugenie Anderson, he's being very honest about how disappointed he feels, about how betrayed he feels by some of his former allies. And it's extremely poignant. And he, I think, is worried that what people will remember of his whole political life, all the things he did, not just civil rights, but his role in creating the Peace Corps, his role in pushing for nuclear uh, disarmament agreements with the Soviet Union during the most dangerous years of the Cold War, the Great Society legislation. He's worried that all those things are going to be forgotten and only Vietnam, which he does consider his biggest mistake, and his losses in the elections and kind of the mocking political cartoons and imitations of him, that's what's going to be remembered. And it's kind of heartbreaking. And you don't have to give him a free pass on Vietnam and I don't, to say that some of the valiance of what he did has just been lost to people, and it really needs to be reclaimed, and that was part of my mission in Into the Bright Sunshine. So would you say his legacy outside of your work here is negative and that you're trying to, to change that a bit? I'm definitely trying to move the needle to a fair position. I, I think that um, his view is a mixture of negative 
because of Vietnam and people have just sort of forgotten who he was. Like, oh yeah, he was a politician somewhere back there. You know, I don't remember much about him. I think he lost to Nixon. So it's a mixture of ignorance and really kind of a continuing harsh judgment based on on Vietnam without giving him the benefits as Lyndon Johnson has now gotten the benefits of praise and admiration for his courage on civil rights. And again, as I said before, he was out there on civil rights well before Lyndon Johnson was. And one reason Lyndon Johnson wanted Hubert Humphreys as vice president is because the people were still a little bit unsure that Lyndon Johnson as a Southerner could really be that, you know, supportive of civil rights. Choosing Humphrey was a sign that I'm really on board with civil rights. Look who I chose as my right-hand man. Well, I must say you have succeeded in moving the needle for me, sir. I, he, you know, Hubert Humphrey went from being sort of this empty fl- uh, floating name in Minnesota to being a man I admire for his work in civil rights. So I appreciate that. Um, I, I believe your work comes out, this, uh, this book comes out next month, correct? In July? It comes out July 14th for the 75th anniversary of Humphrey's Into the Bright Sunshine speech at the 1948 convention. Well, I recommend everyone gets this book and reads it because it does sort of recreate the narrative for this man and shine him in, in, in an appropriate light for the, the good work he did. Um, so thank you, sir. The last question we always have here is what is next for you? Um, I have a book of jazz history that I want to write next. But first, I have some articles related to the book to write and going around the country giving book talks. And so when that all settles down, then I'm going to turn my attention to a particular part of jazz history. But I'm not going to give any spoilers yet. <laughs> That's fair. All right, Sarah. Well, thank you so much for your your uh, your time here with us. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Connor. Thanks for the great, really well-informed questions.